Well, good morning. We are here continuing in our series on Job. This week, I was talking with Lisa, our administrative assistant, about prepping the kids' packets, and she said, well, what should I do for a coloring sheet? What are we studying? And I said, well, we're looking at Job, and we both looked at each other like, what kind of coloring sheet are we going to find on Job? So we found one that has Job in it, but takes out some of the other elements of the story of Job so the kids can enjoy a coloring page that's not too gloomy. But for the rest of us, we get to struggle through Job. We've been wrestling through Job the last couple weeks. We've gone through the first three chapters. The first chapter where we saw God permit Satan to test Job, and what ends up happening is Satan takes Job's property and the lives of his children. And then later in chapter 2, God permits Satan to attack Job's health, and Job ends up covered in sores. And then last week, we looked at chapter 3, where Job laments his birth, where in his sorrow, in his despair, Job cries out, Lord, just take my life. Why was I ever born? Why did that day ever exist? And he curses the day that he was born. Now, we've talked about that Job continues in all of this to not turn his back on God, to not curse God, he continues to walk that path of righteousness and faithfulness to God. But Job has suffered, and he has experienced great loss in his life. And his suffering, though, doesn't stop yet. Job now must face a different kind of suffering, a suffering of loneliness as he experiences his friends turning on him in a way. What a dark place that he finds himself in. And yet, let's see how Job holds to his integrity in the midst of these trials. Before we jump into chapter 4, though, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for your word and thank you for your servant Job, whose life is an example to the rest of us of how to remain faithful to you, no matter what may come our way. So Lord, may you teach us through these words, through your word, Lord, open up our ears, soften our hearts, that your word may sink deep into our spirits, Lord, that we may lead lives that are faithful to you, that reflect you in all that we do, and that continue to pursue you no matter what trials we may face. And Lord, in all of it, may you be glorified and honored as our Lord and Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today in our text, what we're going to see is the well-intentioned attempt by Job's friends to assist him in his suffering. They've been sitting with Job for seven days as he's been mourning in silence. They haven't spoken yet at all. And in chapter 3, after those seven days of silence, we saw Job speak out. But now it's going to be his friends' turn to speak. And we're going to start with Eliphaz, who speaks first. And this problem of suffering that we're faced with, it's a challenging one, and it's hard to know how to approach someone who's suffering. What do we do if we have a friend who's going through a trial, who's just mourning the loss of a loved one, and in that deep, dark place, or someone we know who's struggling, fighting a sickness? How do we handle coming alongside those we know who are suffering? And the impact of how we do this can be great. The impact of how we approach suffering can have many implications. If we don't have a healthy theological framework to process our suffering, it can negatively impact the lives of those around us. Just listen to how it impacted Steve Jobs. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of Steve Jobs. He was the creator and CEO of Apple Computers. 
He's largely responsible for why most of us carry around something in our pocket that can get us any information we want at any time of the day. But his biographer, Walter Isaacson, shared this story. He said, even though they were not fervent about their faith, Job's parents wanted him to have a religious upbringing. So they took him to a Lutheran church most Sundays. That came to an end when he was 13. In July 1968, Life magazine published a shocking cover showing a pair of starving children in Africa. Jobs took it to Sunday school and confronted the church's pastor. If I raise my finger, will God know which one I'm going to raise even before I do it? The pastor answered him, yes, God knows everything. Jobs then pulled out the life cover and asked, well, does God know about this and what's going to happen to those children? The pastor said, Steve, I know you don't understand, but yes, God knows about that. Jobs announced that he didn't want to have anything to do with worshiping such a God, and he never went back to church. Like many of us, Jobs struggled with the idea that God could see and know the details of the injustices and suffering around the world, and yet do nothing to prevent it. And the passages that we're going to be looking at today give us a glimpse of how how Job is engaged with by his friends as he suffers. It can be challenging to handle suffering, to know what to do with it when we're faced with it, whether it be in our own lives or whether it be in the world around us. How do we approach it when we see it? And how do we allow it to not have us just write God off completely like Steve Jobs did? Scholar Christopher Ashen is writing about Job and about this section, talking about his friends coming alongside Job, states the privilege of speaking with sufferers is one that is easily abused. You see, we have to be careful when we seek to come alongside those who are suffering. And we have to give grace when we're the ones suffering and people are coming alongside of us. So let's look at a few passages in Job this morning in chapters 4 and 5 and see what we can learn from Job's interactions with his friends and how we can handle the trials of suffering. So if you would turn with me to Job chapter 4, we're going to be starting at the beginning of chapter 4. And just to give you some more information about what's occurring in this book of Job, is what we're seeing now begin is this back and forth between Job and his friends. So Job's friends will speak, and then Job will respond. His friends will speak, Job will respond. And we'll see that for the next like 20 plus chapters, this back and forth dialogue between Job and his friends before eventually God speaks, and God brings the truth of the situation. But we, it's important for us to remember in this back and forth, in this narrative that we're going to read, that when reading the speeches of Job's comforters, of his friends, that at the end, what we see is the Lord rebukes them for not speaking rightly of the Lord. So keep that in mind as we see how they speak, as we see what they say, that they are rebuked in the end for not speaking rightly of who the Lord is. So starting in Job chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hand. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? 
As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. We're going to pause there because we don't have time to go through everything that is said by Job's friends. So we're going to start with this because this is his first friend who speaks, Eliphaz. And Eliphaz wants to know if Job, who has talked to others, who has proclaimed and encouraged others in their issues, if he will receive a word from his friend. So he starts off right away saying, if one ventures with a word from you, will you be impatient? He wants to know, Job, are you willing to listen to what I have to say? And then he kind of gives him this compliment. He goes back through some of his past ways that Job has instructed others and ways that he's upheld others. It reminds me of that tactic where when you're going to speak with someone and perhaps talk with them about something that they've done poorly, how it's always best to start with a compliment, to highlight something they've done well before then coming in with the negative. And that's what his friend does here. He kind of almost gives him a compliment before the critique and criticism. But in verse Five, he says, but now it's come to you. So Job, you've talked with people who've suffered. You've encouraged them and sought to keep them on the right path. But now that the suffering is at hand for you, now that you're the one who's dealing with it, you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. So his tone turns to this critique now of Job and how Job is responding to what he is experiencing. Eliphaz wants to know if Job will allow others to play the role that he has played to his friends at other times. If he will allow them to now encourage him, to support him, or to critique him in his suffering. And while the intentions of his friend are upright, he desires to be there for his friend, to lift him up and to point him forward in righteousness. He ends up not quite hitting the mark fully, and we're going to see that as we continue It can be hard to know what to do when someone who is near to us is suffering. How we can come alongside someone who is in their deep grief. But Eliphaz points to Job's uh, dismay, points to his impatience in the suffering he has as a way that he's going to start criticizing and critiquing Job and how he is handling the suffering that is at hand. He picks back up in verse 6 and points to what it is that sustained Job in the past. He says, Is it not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Implying that perhaps he thinks Job is losing these things somewhat. That Job, who had confidence in the Lord, that maybe he's losing that confidence. Maybe he's losing that hope in this process as he's cried out for death, as he's wished that the day he was born never existed. And so his friend here is calling out how Job is and who he is at his core. Remember, is not your fear of God your confidence and your integrity your way of hope? We were talking this past week in our growth group as we studied Hebrews chapter 3, how our confidence and our hope, that really the only place we can find our confidence and our hope is in Jesus Christ as our high priest. That there's nothing else that will give us that confidence and that hope but finding it in the Lord. And that's where Job's confidence has been. It's been in the Lord. It's been in the Lord as his sustainer. And yet now, as everything has changed around him, as he's gone through great loss and turmoil, is his confidence still in the Lord? Is his hope still in the Lord? Well, Eliphaz continues in 7 and 8 and 9, calling this question of Job's innocence to the forefront. 
that if the innocent perish, is Job really innocent? He reminds him that those who sow trouble reap the same. And he reminds him, remember who that was innocent ever perished. So he starts to get at this idea that perhaps Job is more at fault for what's occurred than Job wants to admit. Job's sitting here bemoaning his life, bemoaning his birth, and this suffering that he's had to endure. And his friends are sitting there going, I'm sure you played a part in this. There's some reason of why you're experiencing this suffering. Some sin that you've committed, some injustice towards the Lord that you have walked in, and that is why you are experiencing this. And so they're calling into question Job's innocence here. If Job were truly innocent, why would he be reaping trouble? Why would his family be experiencing this uh, suffering? Why would his kids have perished and his servants? If he wasn't somehow at fault, would he really be experiencing the great loss that he is enduring? The enduring word commentary suggests that Job and his friends have built their whole life on the belief that God helps the good and hinders the bad. That, in fact, God can be seen as morally good in the affairs of men. And the friends must infer then from Job's suffering that he has sinned. And we're going to see this pop up again and again in this book of Job. This theme of his friends suggesting that Job's suffering has been caused by something that Job has done. Some unknown sin that he's not willing to confess that he has committed. They continue to suggest that this is part of the problem which frustrates Job because he is not aware of what that sin could be. Ash suggests that what we're seeing here is Job's friends have a simple framework of morality. One could call it a crime and a punishment or virtue and reward. Ash states that the elements of this framework are as follows. One, God is all-powerful. Two, God is just. Therefore, three, God always rewards virtue and punishes sin, usually pretty quickly and certainly in this life. And it follows, number four, that if someone experiences blessings, it must be a reward for their goodness. And conversely, if they experience suffering, it must be a punishment for their sin. This is the moral framework of all serious and religious people that Job's friends would be abiding by. But this theology is bad theology that his friends come at Job with. There's aspects of it that are true. Yes, God is all-powerful. We know that from Scripture, from the character of God. And yes, God is just. We know that we serve a just God. But God does not always reward virtue and punish sin in the ways that we expect. There are plenty who are sinful and yet appear to prosper and not be punished. And there's plenty who have not sinned and yet go through hardships and trials and tribulations. Just think of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was without sin, without blemish, and yet suffered and experienced punishment, thus proving that suffering does not always equate a personal sin. So one must be careful when they speak so broadly as Job's friend Eliphaz does here. To not equate a personal sin with why someone is going through the suffering that they are enduring. In one of the best commentaries on Job, the author Kleins points out that there is a false modesty and pride in Eliphaz here. He speaks only for himself, only out of his own experiences, and yet at the same time he expects Job uh, to accept that his experience is universally valid. 
And we all do this at times, right? We take what our experience is, we take what our beliefs are, and we like to project that as being universally valid, that everyone else should have the same beliefs that we do from our life experiences. And that's what his friend is doing here. Eliphaz may be correct that our actions have consequences. However, he is wrong that the deaths that Job has experienced are consequences of the sins of Job or the lives of those around him. And we know this because we got a a sneak peek in those early conversations between God and Satan. And we know that the, the suffering that Job is enduring did not come because of a sin. In fact, we see the opposite. We see God describe Job as being righteous, as being faithful and one who loves the Lord. And that is why he is experiencing this suffering, not because of some hidden sin like his friends believe. We're going to jump ahead to chapter 5, verse 17, and see how his friend Eliaphaz continues here in this text, reading 17 through 27. He says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hand heals. He will deliver you from six troubles, and seven no evil shall touch you. In famine he will redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and at famine you shall laugh, and shall not fear the beast of the earth. For you shall be in a league with the stones of the field, and the beast of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out, it is true. Hear and know it for your good. So his well-meaning friend wants Job to recognize here that even in the midst of his suffering, that God is near, that God is present. He goes as far as to tell Job that he should consider himself blessed in the midst of his suffering because of God's reproof, that that is a good thing that he is experiencing it. And you may think this sounds like a stretch. Like, could it really be true that one should consider themselves blessed when they're being reproved by God, when perhaps they're enduring suffering? And yet we do see this theme elsewhere in Scripture. I think of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, which says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Really, Eliphaz is trying to encourage Job to remind him that God isn't done with him, to push Job to humble himself, to repent of his sins so that he can move forward with God. You see, he believes that Job has this unrepented sin, and that's why he's experienced these hardships. So his thought is, if only Job would repent, if only Job would humble himself enough, instead of just complaining about what he's been through, instead of lamenting the day he's born, if he would just repent and get right with God, then God can begin the business of restoration in his life. And look at what he says that God can do if he moves forward in this manner. In verse 18, He says, he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. And he's talking about God here. He says, he will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In verse 20, in famine, he will redeem you from death. 
and verse 21, you shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue. And verse 22, at destruction you shall laugh. He tries to tell Job, hold on to hope that God will restore you if you hold on to him. And he tells him in verse 25 that if he does this, your offspring shall be many. So even though Job has lost all his kids, Eliphaz tries to remind Job that God is not yet done with him. That God can still make Job's offspring great. And that his life shall include many more years if he clings to God. If he will just humble himself and repent that God is not done with him yet. These promises given by Eliphaz, most commentators suggest are meant as a ploy to move Job to repentance. The irony, though, is that these end up being fulfilled prophecies later in Job's life. And in verse 27, we see the arrogance in a way of Eliphaz as he is confident that his words are correct. He is so sure of his wisdom and of what he speaks. He says right there in the text, he says, Behold, this we have searched out, it is true. He wants Job to know we are certain of what we are saying. And there is a certainty in the Lord's character and who he is that they are correct about. That Eliphaz is right on the mark that God is all these things and God can do all these things. But his words are wrong in his assumptions of what Job has done and the role that Job has played in his suffering. Job here, uh, later in Job, he's critiqued by the Lord, Eliphaz is, by saying, you have not spoken of me was right in chapter 42, verse 7. You see, his friend is motivated by a desire to help Job. He thinks that if Job will repent and seek God, that God will restore and bless him. And yet there's two problems with this. The first is that we've been told that Job is blameless and upright. In fact, we've been told that three times in this text so far. We're only in the fifth chapter, and we've seen three times that Job is blameless and upright. Thus, his sin couldn't be the reason for his suffering. The second problem with Eliphaz's view is his worldview that he's presenting leaves no room for innocent suffering. As we talked about, the supreme proof of this and that Eliphaz is wrong is the cross of Christ. Because of the cross of Christ, no suffering of a believer before or after Christ can ever be a punishment for sins. Since the sins of all believers have been paid for by the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So there's a deep sense, therefore, in which the innocent sufferings of Christ overflow into the undeserved suffering of his people in every age. Eliphaz is wrong in his assessment of Job's life. He is right in some of the aspects of who God is, but in why Job is suffering and in the way he's trying to encourage Job in this moment, he gets it wrong. These words offered as an encouragement most likely don't feel like it to Job. They don't feel like they have much hope for a man who's desiring death above all things. But let's look at how Job responds, moving forward into chapter 6, verse 24. This is what Job says. He says, Teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray, how forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend, but now be pleased to look at me 
for I will not lie to your face. Please turn, let no injustice be done. Turn now, my vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? You see, Job knows at some level that his friends believe that he is responsible for the suffering that he is enduring. So he's telling them, show me how I've gone astray. Bring to light my sin. Name what it is. They believe that Job and his family bear the responsibility of his experience, and this negates the spiritual dimension of this story. It takes out the spiritual element of why Job is actually enduring this suffering and tries to place the blame all upon Job or his family. And Job, while not perfect, knows that he has done what is required of him. We even saw that Job went as far earlier as presenting sacrifices for his kids just in case they sinned to make sure that they were kept in God's good graces. And Job knows that there's not a specific sin that he can point to as an unconfessed sin or a sin that he hasn't made an offering for or a way that he knows he's turned his back on God. Thus he tells Eliphaz, make me understand how I've gone astray. Job will gladly admit that he is a sinner. This isn't the issue. The issue at hand is that Job is unaware of what sin could have caused the calamities that he is going through. And this is why he cries out against the reproof that he is receiving, because it's ungrounded and unfounded, and yet is the way his friends are treating him in this moment. They won't even look at him. That's why he says, look at me, because through all this, when his friend is critiquing him, when his friend's trying to tell him how God could set things right, if Job would turn to him, if Job would repent, they won't even look upon Job. And so Job's saying, look at me in this moment. In 29, he says, turn now, my vindication is at stake. Job wants his friends to see that his present suffering is not a judgment for a hidden sin. So he's calling upon his friends to point out what that sin is, thus in turn stating his innocence because they can't do so. They can't point to what sin it is that caused this. They can't point to how Job has led his life astray from God's will that would have warranted the suffering that he's endured. Job knows that he has not sinned in his speaking. He has not cursed God, so he states that there is no injustice upon his tongue. He also says, nor can he taste the reason for his suffering. Job is, like his friends, unaware why he is suffering. They think they can pinpoint to sin. Job knows it's not sin, but he doesn't know why it is that he is suffering. And yet his friends who are there to support him, to encourage him, so far, through his first friend's uh, words, have not been a support, have not given Job the hope or the encouragement that he needs. And I imagine have left Job feeling even darker and even more alone. Job is aware of how his friends are viewing him. Their attempts to console him have fallen flat and will continue to fall flat as we'll see in the coming weeks. Job is left feeling unsupported and judged. And this brought to mind, in my mind, that when we face suffering, how do we do so well? How do we maintain our righteousness in the midst of suffering? How do we continue to pursue a life that is righteous and upright like Job was even when we face trials? And also, how do we come alongside others who are suffering? When I read this text and I look at this story, Job is not the only character 
We can learn from Job's life, but I also want to learn from his friends' lives as to how we can come alongside those who are suffering well. Because while I believe that we all will go through some type of suffering in our lives, I also believe that we will also have the opportunity to walk next to people who are suffering. So how do we do that in a way that is better than a life as does today? So I want to suggest three ways this morning I think we can handle suffering, continue to establish a theology of suffering as Christians, and walk with people who are suffering. The first is just a reminder to you that God wants you to be a real comforter to those who are suffering. God wants to use you to help comfort those who are suffering. Romans 12, 15, the Apostle Paul tells us to weep with those who weep. And in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, Paul indicates why we have received comfort. He wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. A lot back and forth there, but essentially we're comforted by God who is the great comforter, so we should comfort others. We should weep with those who weep. We should be near to those who are grieving. We should offer a comforting presence to our friends who are enduring hardships. So I was thinking, how do we do this? How do we comfort those who are suffering? What does that look like for us in the church And I think one of the things we can learn from our text is to start by not casting judgment. When someone is suffering, when they're in that deep, dark place, the point to begin with is not to start with casting judgment upon them, but to be patient, to listen, and to discern what the Holy Spirit's saying to you in that moment of how you can comfort them, what words you can say, and to pray. To both be praying as the one who's seeking to comfort someone and also to pray with them. This can be hard to do and we don't always know how to do it. I was thinking back to when I was a youth pastor in Colorado and one week my boss, the senior pastor, was out of town. And so I was kind of managing things at the church and I was at my office one afternoon when one of our congregants stopped by. And he was a gentleman who had played on our worship team and I knew him a little bit but not well. And he came knocking on the office wanting to talk to the pastor. And I said, well, he's out of town. He said, well, can can I talk with you? And I thought, sure, come on in. And as soon as he got in my office, he just started weeping. His dad had just died. I had no idea how to handle that. I felt so ill-equipped and ill-prepared in that moment. Here he is sitting in my office crying because he's lost his dad. And I had never been through a loss like that. So what do I do? How do I comfort someone like that? Well, that's where prayer is huge. Prayer for us as Christians, knowing that we have access to the Holy Spirit to guide us, to give us the words to say, just to sit with someone and to let them voice their pain and their suffering without telling them what they're supposed to do is a gift. So I sat there feeling ill-equipped, feeling unprepared for this moment, and I just listened because that's really all I could do. I didn't have any great advice. I didn't have a suggestion for how he should handle his grief or a three-step process to move forward with the loss of his dad. I just listened. I cried with him. And we got down on our knees and we prayed together. And then he left. And weeks later, he came back and he told me how meaningful that was. 
Now, I share that with you not because I did something so great, but because God used me in the midst of my weakness, in the midst of not knowing how to handle it, because I trusted the Lord, because I sought the Lord in prayer in that moment. And I let the Lord lead and guide that time. You see, we all have the ability to comfort those who are suffering around us. When we put aside any arrogance that may lead us to proclaim that we know what's best or that we have the answer in those moments, that place ourselves above others, when we put that aside and when we lean upon the strength of the Holy Spirit and love them as Christ loved us, I believe that God will use us to comfort those who are suffering around us. The second point I think that we can glean from this text is to understand that there is such a thing as innocent suffering. We need to be aware of the fact that suffering is not always directly related to a sin issue. Eliphaz, in his words to Job, even speaks of receiving a word from the Lord in chapter 4, verse 12 through 16. And yet we know that that's not true because we know that the Lord didn't tell Eliphaz that Job's suffering was because of his sin. So we need to be intentional with our words and understand that suffering is not a sure indicator of sinfulness in a life. Rick Warren reminds us that suffering also has a purpose, that the Bible says sometimes suffering is God's will for your life. Why? Because it makes you more like Jesus. It deepens your faith. It brings your rewards in heaven. It builds your character. It teaches you to worship instead of to worry. And he suggests that there's three kinds of suffering that I want to share today. The first is a common suffering. It's a universal, everyone suffers in this way. Think about it like a hurricane that comes through. When a hurricane comes, it doesn't differentiate between those who follow Christ and those who don't. Everyone suffers in that. They share in that common suffering. So that's the first type of suffering. The second type is a carnal suffering, which is brought about by your own sin. It, it's the consequences for the sin of your life that you choose to live in. For instance, if you live an immoral life, there will be consequences. If you choose to go out and steal, you may wind up in prison and suffer while in prison. Now that was because of the sin that you committed in stealing. Your choices led to that suffering. And the third way that Rick Warren suggests the type of suffering is God's will. God is more interested in your character than your comfort, and thus sometimes you will suffer. 1 Peter 4.19 tells us, Let those who suffer according to God's will... So we know that there's an aspect of God's will at times in our suffering. So let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, God wants us to remain faithful to him, to continue to seek him even in the midst of our suffering. Which brings me to my third point, which is that we would allow our suffering to drive us to the Lord. American pastor and author James Brooks told of visiting a friend's house and hearing music of a bird singing. It was not the ordinary sound of a chirping bird, but instead it resembled the strains of a lovely melody. At first, Brooks didn't know where it was coming from, but when he glanced around the room, he saw a beautiful bird in a birdcage. The lady of the house explained that it had been taught to sing that way at night. The teacher would repeat the notes time and time again until the bird was able to mimic them. But this was only possible because it was dark and the bird's attention would not be diverted. Let's not despair when the darkness of trouble and suffering descend upon us. God is with us. God will help us. 
God will give us a song. As we've seen in Job's story, no one understands Job's suffering except the Lord. Job's friends don't know why he's going through it. Job doesn't know why he's suffering. His friends think it's tied up with his guilt or with his sin. But the only one who holds the answer to Job's suffering is God. Thus, God is the only one who we must continually turn to in the midst of our suffering. When we are faced with suffering or when we're in those moments of encouraging others who are suffering, the exhortation must be to go to the Lord during these times, the Lord who alone can provide us with peace and comfort for our souls. C.S. Lewis once described suffering as God's megaphone through which he calls on people to turn to him. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So suffering is used by God as an act of a global conscience. You see, when we suffer, we are faced with a choice of how we will respond. Will we react as Steve Jobs did and allow the suffering to push us away from God, blaming him for the suffering, believing that he must be unloving or unfair? Or will we recognize that God's ways are not our ways, that God's plans cannot fully be known by man and continue to place our faith in him, knowing that God is good and that God still loves you, even when you are suffering. Job, despite criticism and blame from those around him, maintains his faith in the Lord, maintains his belief that God is still God and that God is still in control. So this week, as we go out from here, may we spend some time reading the story of Job, getting the full picture of Job's life, and may we allow the Holy Spirit to move in our lives to speak through us to those who are near to us who are suffering, to speak to our own lives when we're suffering, his presence, his peace, and his comfort. And may we cling to the Lord today and always. Amen.